Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment and followed it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Our guest for this episode is Roger Christian. I first became familiar with his name, having seen it on the credits as art director for the first Star Wars movie, for which he won an Oscar, which, by the way, I saw in theaters at least six times, sitting in different sections of the theater each time for a different perspective. That opening scene from the front row center was awesome. He was later nominated for an Oscar for his work on Alien. He directed second unit on Return of the Jedi, The Phantom Menace, The Sender, and Nostradamus. But for this interview, we are going to discuss the movie he directed in 2000, Battlefield Earth. I met Roger when the movie released, and we toured to several conventions together, including the San Diego Comic-Con and the Atlanta Dragon Con. Welcome, Roger. Thank you very much. Good to be here. With some, this has been something I've been trying to do for a while, and so I'm glad we finally were able to make our uh, vectors align to be able to do this interview. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was editing this documentary on the first Star Wars, and we've been like filming and documenting and uh, editing furiously for the last few weeks. So now I've got that's a break today. So that's, that's good. amazingly exciting. So I'm looking forward to seeing that when it comes out. Will that be coming out soon? We're now locked the cut. We're now doing the post and then it's going to be probably released as Blu-rays because the fans want copies that they keep in their, um, yeah. you know, they don't want downloads. They don't, don't want anything else. <laughs> and um, nor on streaming devices. So we're going to do first off, and it's two and a half hours. There's a lot of wow. material and a lot of really great guests on it and a lot of information that's never, ever been exposed. None of the making of Star Wars have no. ever done anything or mentioned John Barry, the designer, or myself, and creating this entire world of Star Wars with George. So um, David West Reynolds, who was head of literature at Lucasfilm, push me to write my books in a Maralpinist and he pushed me to do the documentary. He said, you owe it to the fans. You have to go and explain what you did behind the scenes. So we've done that. And also some of the philosophy behind Star Wars, why it's connected to the world, the spiritual aspects, all of those things. So there's a lot in there. Boy, it'd be so easy for me to like divert off of this, off this podcast and yeah, ask yes. kinds of questions. I'll just have to wait for the documentary to come out. Right. <laughs> So um, how'd you actually end up coming to direct Battlefield Earth, the movie? Uh, through Star Wars, basically, really, as, as a prime kind of uh, connection, because um, John had seen, obviously, and when he was asking about directors, the trailer for Phantom Menace broke, the mm -hmm. first one, and just by chance, because second unit, we often get really great things to do that they don't yeah. have time on the first unit. So a lot of the shots in the trailer were mine. And John had seen Nostradamus, this film there behind, mm -hmm. which I made, and, yeah. and told me after when he met me, and said, well, you're not afraid of actors and you're not afraid of powerful performances. So from what I understand, John and um, his manager called George and they'd been looking for a director and they said, because it's independently financed, this is fairly new for John and it was a lower budget at that time, it was quite low, but 
the financier Ely Samaha partnered with John and said, if you could do it for this budget, we'll do it. And George apparently said, well, there's only one person who could do it for that budget, and that's me, because I've been involved with him, and Star Wars is always independent of movies. And then John told me on one of the tours when we were there, privately at night, he said, you know how your name came up? And I said, no, I have no idea. And he said, well, you know Quentin Tarantino? And I said, no, I've sadly never met him. I admire his work, no end. And he was a champion of the sender. I mean, hugely championing it. And uh, he said, no, I, I went through many directors and kept telling Quentin the names. And when yours came up, he went, you got it. <laughs> so that's how it came about. And um, I was invited with Larry um, Shapiro, my manager there, when I was in LA. I was invited to to a private dinner with John and um, Ely. I think Ely was there. And it was um, Jonathan Crane. Mm-hmm and myself and Larry, my manager. So I, he said, you wanted to go to dinner with John? I mean, John was the biggest film star at that time on the planet. And I said, of course, it's, um, it's going to be, um, you know, just an honor to meet him anyway. Mm-hmm. So I walk into the meeting and um, John envelops me in a huge hug like this and said, <laughs> I just want to thank you for Nostradamus. And... Um, then he just said, look, we're going to have dinner, but I really admire your work and I'd lot it out, you know, the usual things that we went through. And um, I kind of explained how we'd done Nostradamus for $4 million in um, Romania. And he, he was confounded how I did it for that much money. It's a big movie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of those things together. And then at the end of the meal, he said, well, you've got to do this film. I've told... William Morris, I'm not doing another film until I do it. I've got, I'm able to do it now. So um, that's how it came about. Wow. Okay. Also, when you did your interview on the uh, Blu-ray that came out on the, uh, for Battlefield Earth recently, you talked also about just Elrond Hubbard as a, as a pulp fiction writer being one of the most prolific and really enjoying the book itself as well. So anything else particularly about just Elwin Hubbard as an author, you know, how, you, how his stories translated into images for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I knew his name. He's one of the most prolific pulp fiction authors on the planet. Um, huge number. I think, what, 50 books he'd wrote, 48, something like that. A little over 200, but yeah, it's a lot. Oh. <laughs> well, there you are. And um, so with, with that, and then, you know, Battlefield Earth is one of the highest ranked in number, best-selling books of all time. It's mm-hmm. very, very high. Um, and I think, you know, it's a, it's a, just a great science fiction. And also, he is a very prolific science fiction writer. He's written some, you know, all of us who read science fiction, he's written some great books and exploring ideas and um, characters, everything. So I knew this book, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, well, how do we do it? <laughs> because they at the time told me I could 
Don Carmody, who was the producer here for Ely Summer, I did all his movies in Canada, and they said, we're going to make it in Canada. We get these tax credits and all of this. And I think I went into Montreal with $9 million. Yeah, that, just, that actually brings to the point where, um, I mean, Newsweek and a lot of other media said you had, it was a $75 million movie. So what's the actual truth on that? It's a backhanded compliment. The act that the truth is absolutely signed in legal um, documents by the um, film finance company. Because at the end of the day, the film finances lock the budget and they're the ones, if you go over budget, they come and remove the director and they take over all of this. So you have to adhere to a budget. This is this a very, very tight legal documents. I signed with John Travolta the final budget, fully done. Everybody paid, all the stars actor, and it was $44 million. Out of that, I only had $21 million for the entire production and the entire special effects. That was locked in stone. That's all I had. So it looked like a $75 million movie, and I was very proud of that. And that was my intention, to make this look double the budget that it was. Mm -hmm. And we did that by being in Montreal and, and finding incredible locations. Um, very much like Star Wars, Montreal at that time had only really made small French art films. So we went into the city with something so new that nobody really knew what we were doing. I went to an old Marine base and used their um, warehouses for stages. We didn't go to a studio. It saved a fortune. I, I, we, we discovered ways to do things, which I've learned on Star Wars principally, even on Alien. I mean, all these films were under budgeted. So I had a handle on how we could do this, and that's what we did. That was brilliant. And, and, and it's, you know, I don't understand why it's never defended that that was the budget. That's what it was. There's no, no, um, you know, it's, there's no um, excuses or no, it, it, I was accused of that in the, in the Blu-ray. They said that the first release of the Blu-ray when, um, or the DVDs, when it was reviewed, they said, this director is still delusional. He thinks he made a film for $44 million. We all know it was $75 million. Well, what can I do? It's very strange in this industry that um, it, I'm being backhanded praised for what I did. <laughs> okay, well, that's, um, yeah, and I think your special effects that you had for it was only like 9 million of that 21? Exactly nine. And, um, you know, we, we had a fledgling company called Hybrid who'd started in uh, Montreal. I went to them because the big company we were supposed to go with, their showreel, all of the best work on it was one, one um, creator technician who moved to hybrid and we followed him. And I, we gave hybrid 85 shots and it launched them, you know, and then right afterwards, Steven Spielberg, who loved our ships, asked where they were done. And um, they, told him hybrid, John told him, and he'd never ever gone anywhere but ILM, but they reclothed our ship. So if you look at 
minority report, they're my ships that we we designed and did with hybrid. They're the same, you know, and this is how things work. It's mm -hmm. I love this, you know. Mm -hmm. So we did that and we we chose different houses all over the place. So some one even did a whole sequence for free. They said, We really love this, we want to do it for you. If we can use it for a show reel, we'll do it. So they did. We 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 were kind of doing whatever we could to get all of these up on screen. There was one section missing. And when John saw the entire film, he said, well, that section would be great in the film. And I said, well, yeah, no, uh, but you know, we, we, we would go over budget. John put up his own money and paid for that one additional sequence. Wow. And that was still within the 9 million budget. That's what it was. We signed off on. Wow. So on the, um, I'm making the the movie then. So we talked about one of the things that's a challenge. So what was yours from yourself? What was the single biggest biggest challenge in producing Battlefield Earth? Um, I I think you know it, there, there was a big challenge with the makeup with John, um, and I still think I was right <laughs> because. <laughs> Patrick Totopoulos, who designed it, and I, and even John was not akin to it. We wanted to do him like the book. We wanted to cover him more, make him more like exactly as it was identified. Um, you know, the argument was always against, we've got John Travolta, he's the biggest star on the earth. You've got to see who he is all the time. So... I would have preferred if we could have gone further, you would have known it was John, the voice was there, and we would have had the eyes and bits of the face. I think mm -hmm. that was a challenge. And the second challenge was they were huge, and the cyclos. So Patrick came up with the idea of the boots, which were logical because they came from another planet where the gravity is not the same. So they had to kind of hold themselves down. And that solved a problem of making them intimidatingly huge. You know, you know, after that, like Lord of the Rings and everything, they can afford to go and re-kind of composite the characters with CGI and do it. But I had to do everything virtually for real. So um, that was another challenge. And just trying to get this done in the time we had and and you know, films like this, like when you look at Star Wars, it has about two years in post. I did Battlefield in five months wow. from start to finish when we landed back in LA in Warner Brothers. And I, you know, I tell this story now that I had a Jeep and in the back I had a box of bananas and a box of corn chips. And I was eating that, driving between effects houses and the cutting rooms for that like three months of that time, I had nothing. There were seven days a week, this was it. And, you know, I thought, can we do this? Well, there is no excuses. And, you know, you 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 get your head down and do it. You don't say, or don't start complaining, you do it. So right. we actually finished that film in five months, which was entirely, and to the sound mix in Warner Brothers, everything. It's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So now on the, um, like I handle all the social media for Battlefield Earth. And so there's questions that come up and I know how I address them, but now I'm looking forward to having this interview so I can just put the link to this. And every time somebody asks sure. a question, because I'm going to address all these misconceptions. So 
one of the things that comes up, and I think it's a major misconception in the movie, is the use of Dutch angles. And it's interesting because so many major movies use Dutch angles as, as a key part of the, of the uh, photography. Quentin Tarantino uses it all the time with uh, his, his movies. Inglorious Bastards, absolutely. Inception, Dutch angles there, Harry, Harry Potter did it. And even the current um, Mandalorian, Dutch angles constantly, as well as the, um, what's that thing called? When you, when you finish the scene, go in the next one where it rolls out, it spins out? Oh, yeah, the, the wipes. Yeah. Yeah. So how's that working? So, so, I mean, it's used so much right now, but yet, you know, it's a, it's been a point of concern, but it's like, why was that such an important part of the movie? Because the, uh, the DP and I, Giles Nutkins and I, we, we really um, looked at this whole idea and it came because Battlefield Earth novel is pulp science fiction. And it's one of the greatest, and that there should be a lot more of this. But you know, like steampunk things like that. But this, this is very much the tone of the movie, and I love that. It's really good. And coming from a long past of graphic novels, and you know, you look at them all. You look at the Batman novels early. All of these, they are all angled. Everything. There's never a straight frame in them. And we wanted to create that experience and to, and to say to everybody in the audience, we're making a kind of a pulp fiction, science fiction movie. That's how you judge this. This is what the book is and this is what's written. And there's nothing wrong in that. It also helped us to get the cyclos into the frame sometimes because we could with a slight higher elevation on that side, which meant I could do it without always cutting and it looking fake. Mm -hmm. So we tried it out, you know, and I, yeah, I don't know why it, just people wanted to condemn something about it. Then they condemned me saying I didn't know what I'm doing and I didn't know, you know, I've made a lot of movies in my life and I've, I'm not somebody who doesn't know. It was very much an intentional experience for an audience and to try to, you know, we were a little bit early. I have to say, after that comes in all of the sci-fi kind of, you know, superheroes and everything like that's coming in. So we were a little bit experimental, a little bit early for people to fully kind of, you know, engage with an idea that we had. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, because it's just it's it's so common now, and it's just it's just odd that that's you know comment that gets made. Another point that gets that gets asked is how it was like in the book you've got the hero the co-heroes there are from uh scotland they're, they're scots and what you ended up with with cavemen who became then johnny's cohorts how'd that come about i i you know i always look deeply under the surface i, I you know like star wars and i grew up with mythology and um, i've really studied it and i go into a lot of all of this in the documentary we're doing now on star wars and um when i take the book and i went below the surface of it which is where you find the kind of truth to me it was exactly the story of early america and the indigenous indians and I, I knew that Ron Hubbard grew up when he was six years old next to an Indian reservation. And in fact, he was made a, a kind of medicine chief. Yeah, a blood a brother. Very yeah. Young, a blood yeah, brother. a very young age. So I realized that what his 
deeply underneath it was this kind of metaphor for, you know, when you think the Indians, indigenous Indians in America had lived in this country for as long as they could remember and go back in history and they wound the plains and everything was great. Within 60 years, everything was collapsed. The people came in, the immigrants and everything, and started farming and taking the lands and doing this. And, you know, this is progress suddenly happened. And I realized that this was the way to kind of show this was to have Johnny really, as he's written, he's a kind of early organically motivated you know, wild kind of character. That's mm-hmm. the good. This is the good. The other side is the evil. It's like in Star Wars, you know, look at Luke Skywalker is a farm boy living on a farm on a remote planet. And there's this massive technical machinery that's coming in, destroying them. And the fight is on. Mm-hmm. This was why I, I did it like that. Okay. Well, that's great. Cause I'm so glad we're being able to do this interview now. Another question, too, that came up is, and it might be just strictly because of budget, you know, you got the um, you got the Harrier jets that you use, but in the book, it's the um, it's a cyclo, you know, planes and stuff like that. That's just a, a budget thing or. <laughs> yes, that, that was really <laughs> a budget think? thing. And uh, yeah, we, we thought, well, how can we do this? Because um, uh, they existed. And if. It seemed to me to be in the learning curve. And it, it, you also have to include some things that the audience can relate to. It's like in Star Wars, there are things like the guns I used. They're only a slight modification of a World War II pistol. They're not like sci-fi guns. So they kind of somehow deep into the our subconscious, they connect. So we thought, well, if we use these jets, then that would be a logical way they could fight back and they could learn it some, because that would be something that, you know, is in the consciousness of, uh, of these people because they were intelligent um, kind of communities that had just gone back to the ways of old, of, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with the land and things. So, there was a logic behind that too. I'm sure there's logic behind everything. I just want other people to know the logic so that it's, yes. so we, we put it there so people can actually have it. You know, somebody's right. actually willing to listen and not just, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, some people just will like to forward things that are that are just untrue just because they like to do it without ever even experiencing what the thing is they're writing about. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So then on... Um, the pen is mightier than the sword. That's what it <laughs> what is. You grew it is up indeed. With. Now, one thing too that's come up is the um, the nose piece that they use for their you know they get their their breathe gas. But then I look at that and I saw the upcoming trailers for Dune, and I go like, "What? I mean, it's yeah. all it's it's not exactly the same, but it's pretty darn Similar. close." Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, and it, again, it it was a logical way for everybody. You know, you can go fully, you know, you think, oh, well, they'd all have masks and they'd be all cozed and everything like that. But that wasn't the world. This is a fantasy world that kind of created, but he, he's, his science fiction is very much like mine, where it's embedded into a reality. It's embedded into a kind of logical 
way, which is why I connected with George on the first Star Wars, because that no science fiction film before this had ever done that. They were all fantasy and didn't connect to an audience. Mm -hmm. Star Wars did, because we created something very real that people could identify with and not question in the cinema. You weren't all going, oh, how do, oh look at those guns, they're really beepy. Nobody questioned. And this was a part of Battlefield that, I think was very important to um, to do. And we discussed how do they breathe and everything. And then we came up with this idea and it left the emotions of the actors to be able to be expressed correctly. Mm -hmm. And it was a kind of logical idea that probably in the future, you know, you can't judge everything by today. Science fiction is open book, and um, as long as one connects to something that might be possible, you know, I look at the spacesuits now they're doing with Elon Musk and um, Richard Branson, they're all big glass and you can see, and it's like June is using it, and that alien started that because you don't want to be all enclosed and you can't see anyone. You, you need to be able to experience the characters and what they're doing. And I think, yeah, you know, th this is, you know, the motivational things that are coming through the centuries and through now with movies, they're passing on in short periods of time. But it's great, you know, this is, we all feed off each other. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and Battlefield stands as a landmark that, you know, I was feeding off and now it's feeding other things and it's feeding June, it's feeding all sorts of things. Star Wars is feeding Mandalorian. It's, um, and Star Wars was fed from Kurosawa and Sergio Leone, you know, and they, it's, it's, and, and Mandalorian now has gone back to those. So mm -hmm. these things are, to be looked at and embraced, you know, and discovered, not to be criticized all the time. This is this is how work continues and grows organically. Yeah. Now, one thing that um, I read on the various interviews done with, with the uh, actors and the actors past and the people, the production people there, it was just a real fun movie to do. People were so excited about it. They were like, a lot of innovation went into this movie. So talk about that a bit too, because I think it's that's really important. People really get just how much creativity is represented in that movie. Yeah, everybody was really on board, you know, and we 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 didn't have the money to do the special effects. So what did I do? I said, Well, you know what they did with ILM in the first days? They set it up. So we took a stage in the old Navy base and built models of everything. I took an English Bill Pearson, who I traveled the world with doing models, he's brilliant, uh, passed on now, but Bill came and taught all the Montrealers how it's done. They're now world-class people. Mm -hmm. And we set up ILM with plastic sheets. We built all the cities. We crashed the stuff down. I brought in an explosive expert for the one explosions from LA and they all learned from him. And, um, you know, Patrick Totopoulos, the designer, was really inspirational. And, you know, often they say, because I was a designer and I did all this stuff, but I let them go. And I said, Patrick, I, I don't want to do what Star Wars did. I don't want to do Alien. Bring me the vision of this that is in the book, which he did. You know, he, he designed these ships, which I would never have designed if I had, but they're great. These ships mm -hmm. are really good. And I said, you know, Spielberg loved them. So can't be too bad. <laughs> and um, 
I think, you know, everybody on board, especially in Montreal, because they'd never done something like this before. And um, we had an impossible schedule. I brought in a very experienced first assistant director from, from Toronto who scheduled it. And he said, Roger, we've got an eight-week schedule. He said, I can schedule six weeks. We can keep to that. After that, we're out of control. But we did it. You know, we got there on budget and on time. We, we went, became a second unit afterwards. And there was a, a huge sense of camaraderie of learning and, you know, all, all of the actors who came on, everybody, Kim Coates loved it. She, you know, it, it's something that was special. And sometimes when you have so little money and you're up against it, but you're doing stuff that they were seeing in rushes and everything, you know, and John was there. John was bringing in the most amazing food, I have to say. <laughs> I, I had to beg him to stop at one point because everyone was getting fat, on the, on the <laughs> including himself. And I said, John, you've got to stop. But he would bring it. There'd be six different things flown in from Maine, of fish and meat and everything. It was wonderful. No one's ever had that before, but John always said, I, I cover the budget of the food and we like to eat well and I like my crew to eat well, you know, and, and let's keep them all happy. And he did. He got them fat too. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like working with John? I mean, he's, I well, mean, he's such an amazing person. Just, I mean... You just don't hear bad stories about him, but he is such a nice man. Very honorable kind of um, strength about him. And he was incredibly supportive. And just to give an example, on the first day of shooting, he wasn't in for a few weeks. I left him out so that he could do what he does and get prepared and all of this stuff. We're out in the wilds, miles out in this uh, Johnny's village. And there he is, turned up. He said, no, I have to support my director. And um, he helped me age down costumes himself and do stuff to get them done. This is on the first shots. That was John. And he was always incredibly, incredibly supportive right the way through. I, I still say, and if everybody wants to know the truth about this man, when we'd finished, when it was released, then they said, we're going to do the DVD release. And he said, you know, whatever happened with the film, the DVD release is going to be our forever kind of uh, document, if you like, of Battlefield. So he said, what we're going to do, Roger, you do your cut. And the editor did his cut and John did his cut. And they said, we'll give everyone six weeks and then we'll come together and John would decide which one he used. Now, I took out several of John's most favorite scenes because I centered my version back to the book. And I, I made the through line much more closer, much closer to what Ron Hubbard had written. And I thought that would be a better through line for people to follow than we'd ended up with some of the scenes that writers had written, right? Mm -hmm. So then six weeks later, I got a call. Who did number four? <laughs> I said, oh, that was me, number four. I thought, oh, I'm going to get lambasted and fired. And she said, well, that's the one John chose. Now, John allowed 
the most favorite scenes of his that I didn't think helped the plot move for an audience, he allowed those to be taken out on this first Blu-ray release. That is John. So that shows the kind of integrity of his and um, the, the lack of ego. Yeah. So, you know, and I was honored. I was working with him and Kelly and, uh, you know, they have the most wonderful relationship, the two of them. And um, it's, it's, John's been through, he's lost the two loves of his life and he's still young. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he still maintains who he is. And, um, I, you know, it's tragic that this has happened to him and in such terrible ways and how he kind of disappeared. But, and he told me himself on Greece, his first love, he would fly back from the shoot in, in um, New York City and fly to LA because she was dying with cancer and, uh, and was with her at the end, nursing her through it. This is John. This is the truth behind this man. And he just happens to be a wonderful actor. I mean, mm -hmm. wonderful, you know? Good. Well, that's that's pretty amazing there. Just that that story of, you know, working with him. And, you know, I said my experience with him is, is that he's is that type of man, too. Yes. What for you is the most fun part of making the movie? Just doing it, you know, the whole thing. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's it's rare that you get these things that are so out of the ordinary that they're really kind of and it was at the time when we made it. Um, with such a great kind of literate background to it mm -hmm. and a novel like that. My, you know, my only regret is the second half of this book is extraordinary. And uh, we, we had planned to do that, you know, and maybe in hindsight it would never have happened, but we should have made the second part first because it, it's so full of action and packed, you know, it's wonderful. So, yeah, that... But just doing it was fun for me, the whole thing. It was exhausting. I mean, I had no mm -hmm. time ever. But, you know, when you're working with the top racehorses, which John is and Kelly and Forrest Whitaker, you know, this is, um, it, it, for any director, it's, it's just standing, watching daily, you know, these people doing their job and they're at their prime kind of power it's mm -hmm. um it's just thrilling yeah they're um i don't know forrest but definitely i i knew uh kelly and uh i do know john so i can appreciate that yeah so, if you if if you wanted to um if you wanted to use the word jazz what jazz represents and put it into a human being it's forrest whitaker <laughs> wow well that's 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 okay. good i definitely love jazz and it's, it's very yes very American, very alive. Yes. So in terms of like what you want someone else to be able to get, like what were you trying to achieve then? And we talked about around it, but just a straight, what were you trying to achieve then with this movie with respect? Cause you were, you're already cutting edge with what you did with star Wars. So what were you trying to achieve with this one here in terms of makes it different or notch up or just moving the, the genre forward? Yeah, it was moving the genre forward. You know, it's, it, I love science fiction. I, it, I, it's just I've grown up with it. And I, I, I love, you know, Nostradamus is a deep 
ancient kind of epic from true story drama. I love doing this stuff, but as I as I was mentioning earlier, I just wanted to establish a new part, a new genre in science fiction, which was pulp science fiction. You know. Mm-hmm. And um, I think maybe if we'd been a few years later, then <laughs> maybe it would have been received differently and, and as the experiment that we did. And just to show people, you know, like the first Star Wars, was, we, we had $4 million when we started it. And I think the budget was only six at the end of it. It's impossible when you look at it. I wanted to do the same. I just mm-hmm. wanted, you know, that's why I felt very bad for all the crews and the people who put so much into this, the... It, the lack of kind of respect that went to that side of the movie, because when you watch it without prejudice, it's got a lot going for it, you know, and it's got a lot of ideas in it. And, and those ideas will eventually come true, teleportation ideas and the way that he did, because, you know, Elder Ron Hubbard had a, had an eye into the future that was very unique. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of these things are, as I said, it's very true. And, I, and I, it is a kind of metaphor for the age. It's a metaphor for the power of good and the power of evil. And they're the two sides of our psyche, you know, and they go hand in hand. There's never one without the other. And the good will always triumph, even, and it's always displayed in stories of the, of the few people fighting the big evil empire. Well, you know, when you look at it, some friend of mine, a distributor, said, wow, you just, you, with Battlefield, you did a, a kind of metaphor for America, and it's a metaphor for the world. So that was always important to me, that, and I just hope people were going to see that as well. It's... Um- there's a, uh, in the back of the book, in, in an interview that Elwin Hubbard had uh, with the Rocky Mountain News, he made the comment about the book, one, um, in Battlefield Earth, I present a situation where mankind has almost been wiped from the face of the earth by advanced technology and is now imprisoned, not so much by the aliens who dominate the planet, but by superstition. Man has dwindled to the point where the few surviving tribes, hiding like frightened animals, have actually forgotten about the aliens and have taken to superstition instead. Thus, they were tra- first trapped by their own ideas. When the hero Johnny Goodboy Tyler decides to leave the mountain sanctuary of his dying tribe, he is first of all breaking free of superstition. Again, look at the story of E.T. It is also a story of superstition and fear and how it is overcome by children. So he's definitely pushing heavily on, you know, it's it's the the youth. And there's another point too, where he said, um, the message is just this, whatever happens, you can win. And that's something too, that really came very, very clear. Um, You know, it's that you can let the human spirit will ultimately overcome and and beat out, you know, the evil, these, these other, these other beings. Yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, this is what I, was attracted to in the book and in the movie. And I tried to portray that in the right way, that this mm-hmm. was a group of, you know, people with the the, the good. Yeah. <laughs> people who have that and they triumph over evil. And that's what every, you know, Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell's great book that we all now feed off, the whole world and filmmakers all feed off, it's personified directly into Battlefield Earth. It's a, you know, it comes straight from his 
you know, the, the guidance of Joseph Campbell gave on, on how the hero's journey works and how the philosophy works globally. So I just hope that was coming through, you know, mm -hmm. to people to see it. And I think the only redemption I found was when um, um, John Flynn, the reporter, mm -hmm. wrote to Rip, uh, Roger Ebert and said, would you please reevaluate this film? Because it's actually got a lot of interesting things within it. And he wrote back an email to him and said, I have, and you're right. It actually has, it's a very interesting movie. And John lost that email. I said, this is one of the most important emails to me on the planet, but he cannot find it. Um, I tried, I've, I've bugged him and bugged him for years. He doesn't mm -hmm. know where it went, but you know, it, it, all of these things are in there. They're there, yeah. to, and 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 uh, and very important to all of us. You know, we're all going through these COVID times. Who would have thought? We're all being decimated. People are dying. We're weak as human beings, but it fought back. Um, this is, you know, what happens. That's right. Did uh, Quentin Tarantino make a comment to you on on the movie? Well, John as a thank you to me, when we were finished the tour, he said, oh, I'm, I'm putting you on the plane back to um, Los Angeles. And by the way, Quentin's with you. So I met Quentin and we spent, see, Quentin, Quentin went on and on about um, the sender. He was, he was acting scenes out for me. He loved this movie so much. And we talked about Battlefield, but he actually said, Actually, Battlefield is the kind of movie I really want to make. <laughs> that came from him. So, um, yeah, he, 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 he really got it. Mm -hmm. But he understood the, the pulp science fiction aspects and, you know, and he understands what's under the surface that we're trying to portray all of the time. And I just, I'm just sad that the film was never given the opportunity and the chance for all of that to be seen for what it is. Well, I think the Blu-ray, it came out a few months ago and it wouldn't have come out, it wouldn't have been released had it not been something that someone's gonna make some money with. Yeah, I, I guess so. And you know, the, this is the other thing that I, we've, I've been accused of, that it's a disaster. It's not. And Ely Samaha, who financed the whole thing, I, I went to meet him a few years back and he said, Roger, the only two movies I've made a lot of money with are Whole Nine Yards and Battlefield Earth. And that last check with all the Blu-ray sales and global sales, it was over $150 million revenues had come in. And this should be lauded and appreciated, but it's just gone into this internet repeating, repeating negatives, which is who human beings kind of flock to. But, you know, and that's something underneath the film that you need to go against that. You need to win against that. You need to go to the positive. All of us do. You have to find that way. And um, so by now, you know, we outgross Gladiator on Blu-ray DVDs in the UK by far. The, the, the film has... Warner Brothers estimated they would sell 200,000 
DVDs on the first release in the first six months. They sold 600,000 in three months. Wow. So it was never a financial failure. When you make a film for 44 and it's grossing 150, it's, it's as pros- profitable as, um, as Hollywood big movies. Good. So, um, yeah, I think that's something that I just, I wanted this interview so we could just give, here's the, here's the, the facts and figures on this stuff here. And so, and I wanted it from, uh, the director. So you can just say, look at, here's the story. Let me just listen to me. And this is what I have to say. I have a story to tell you. Yeah. And it's the truth. You know, I only deal in the truth as a director. I have to, you know, there's no lies in this. This is fact. Yeah. So this has been great. I, I so appreciate your taking the time to, uh, at all. to take this interview. Now, anything else I didn't ask you that you said, oh, you didn't ask me this? No, I think we covered a lot. That's <laughs> great. So, yeah. so um, I guess what we have looked forward to is, is this uh, documentary coming out now in the next uh, yes. soon, I guess, in the near future. It should be within about, I don't know, two months. I think it'll be out onto Blu-ray. They're, they're forming a website that people can buy it. They want to do a, a release on um, a blockchain and different ways of doing it. And my wife is doing uh, the, the PR and social media and they're, you know, we're, our target is all the Star Wars fans around the world and the Mandalorian has brought them back into the fold um, in a big way. So um, we're, you know, we just have to get our reach out to them so that they know this is there. And they're just stories about how it was made. And um, I have some, I have some very, very interesting, very top directors, two or three of them just going through the whole documentary with me, explaining things and talking about things. And um, so, and it's a true insight. Really, my book turned into a documentary from our experiences and how we did everything. So, And I've tried to be innovative with it. I've got, I didn't want to put clips of the movies in because everyone's seen it a million times. And uh, we have animation sequences which kind of explain... Um, our thought processes mm-hmm. and in it, kind of the what was inspiring us, and um, and because of COVID, I couldn't travel, so right. we're in vir- virtual sets. I have a, a, th- a virtual set here, three D, and we have people wow. in sets with me, and they're sitting talking with me from London, LA, and um, in America. So it was fun. Yeah, that's great. Good. Well, again, thank you very much for uh, taking this. Not at all. It's good to see you again. (laughs) Yeah. At least this way. This is the way the world works now. Exactly. Right. Hopefully not much longer. Yeah. Much longer. I hope so too. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well by just typing in Writers of the Future. Again, thank you very much, Roger. That's... Very good to be here and uh, more to come.